ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so continuing with kun salafian ala aljadda this book which explains some of the principles of the methodology of the salaf and what it means to be following upon that correct methodology that methodology which was taught by the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the companions that learned it from him and then they taught those who came after them and that continued up until it reached us today so it's important for us all to learn what that correct methodology is what that proper way of practicing islam is because many people out there they will claim different things people will come to you and they will say this is the correct way to do it and that is the correct way to do it so we need to understand and learn what that revelation actually was and how the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam actually taught it and how the companions learned it and acted upon it so this is the book which explains some of those things and explains the clear pure religion as it came down to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so today we were on the section manhaj salaf manhaj salaf fi al aqidah the methodology of the salaf when it came to aqidah understanding aqidah and some of the principles of aqidah because this is the thing that differentiates between the people a person if his aqidah is wrong his tawhid is wrong then that is a major flaw in that person's belief and his methodology whereas other factors might not be as critical as this factor maybe other issues regarding certain things to do with fiqh they might not be as important or as severe in the differing regarding them uh, compared to if a person made an error in aqidah so here now the sheikh is going to explain some of the principles of ahl sunnah wal jamaa when it comes to understanding the correct aqidah so firstly the sheikh says yatalakhasu manhajuhum fi ma yali the methodology of the salaf it can be summarized in what follows firstly hasruhum masdar at-talaqi fi bab al-i'tiqad ala kitab Allah wa sunnati rasulih sallallahu alayhi wasallam wa fahmihim lin-nusus ala dawi fahm salaf salih firstly ahl sunnah wal jamaa it is their methodology that they restrict they restrict their source of knowledge when it comes to aqidah and these affairs to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the Quran and the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that the source of this knowledge of this aqidah of this tawhid of the foundation of this religion it is only those two revelations the Quran and the sunnah and obviously as the sheikh mentions wa fahmihim linnusus and understanding those two understanding the Quran and the sunnah upon the understanding of the salaf in light of how the salaf understood that and explained that so we know that our source of knowledge is the quran and the sunnah evidences from the quran the ayat the speech of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the authentic narrations and that is also a revelation from allah as we already mentioned in the quran the evidences are there which tell you that you must follow the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so the ayah wama atakum ar-rasul fa khudhu wama nahakum anhu fa 
that which the Prophet ﷺ gives you, that which he presents to you, then take that. The commandments which come from the Prophet ﷺ, then act upon them. And similarly, those things that the Prophet ﷺ prevents you from, then stay away from them. That's an ayah in the Qur'an. That's an evidence uh, which shows and proves that we must follow the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Similarly, وَمَا يَنْتِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَىٰ That the Prophet ﷺ doesn't speak from his own desires. Rather, that is revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we know we have the Qur'an, the speech of Allah, and the authentic sunnah, the revelation also upon the Prophet ﷺ. Those are the two foundational sources where we take our knowledge from. Upon the understanding of the salaf, the companions, and those who came after them, their understanding of these texts, and these ayat, and these ahadith, not what people do today, they come to an ayah in the Qur'an, they read the ayah, maybe they don't even know Arabic, they read the translation of it, and they say, this means that you have to do this, and you have to do that. Or this ayah, look at it, it's clear, it means such and such. Or as far as I can see, it's clear that this means this, or it means that. So people, they give their own interpretations. Or they come to a hadith, and they say, look, the hadith says such and such. That must mean that we have to do this or we have to do that, or this is allowed and that's not allowed. It must mean that. Look what the hadith says. But again, it's only their own interpretations of things. They don't understand the reality of the meanings of this ayah, the reality of the meanings of this hadith. And that's why we say, when it comes to understanding the Qur'an and the sunnah, then we look back to what the salaf understood from those ayat and from those ahadith. Not what the imam in the masjid or what the local person, he reads and understands from his intellect. So that is the first point. When it comes to aqidah, when it comes to tawheed, the fundamentals and the basics of this religion, it is not upon the opinions of men, rather it is the Qur'an and the sunnah and the understanding of the salaf. That is the basis. Then the second point. احتجاجهم بالسنة الصحيحة في العقيدة وَسَوَاءٍ كَانَتْ هَذِهِ سُنَّةِ الصَّحِيحَةِ مُتَوَاتِرَةِ أَمْ أَحَادًا The second point is that Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, they use the Sunnah as a point of evidence. The Sunnah is an evidence. Unlike some people like we mentioned, the Qur'aniyun and these types of people, they say the Qur'an, yes we accept that that is the speech of Allah. But the Sunnah, Allahu A'lam, maybe the Hadith is authentic, maybe it's weak, how can we tell? So they start to put doubts about the sunnah. Rather the salaf, it is their methodology, ahl sunnah wa jama'ah, that the authentic ahadith which are proven authentic, then they are an evidence. They can be used as an evidence in aqidah, in understanding the basics and the fundamentals of this religion. Alongside the Qur'an, the speech of Allah and the authentic sunnah. Whether that sunnah, that hadith is mutawatir, meaning it was narrated by a congregation, a group, a large amount of the companions. And there are many ahadith that are mutawatir. Mutawatir, for example, the hadith that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends in the last third of the night. That's a hadith which is mutawatir. The scholars have mentioned close to 30 companions, maybe more, narrated that hadith. This is what some of the people of innovation use. They say that you can only accept a narration if it has been narrated by multiple narrators. There are multiple narrators, many narrators, 
at each level of the chain. Because they say to you in a very simplified manner, they say, if there are many different companions who heard this hadith from the Prophet ﷺ, then that must mean the hadith is definitely okay. But if there was only one companion, or maybe two companions or three companions, only one or two or three, then Allahu Alam, is this hadith really authentic? Is it really as what they said it is? Maybe they made a mistake. There was only one or two of them who heard it. So they begin to have doubt. And so they say that narrations that are not mutawatir, narrated by multiple people at each level of the chain, if it is less than that, if it is only one or two who narrated it, they say this hadith, we can't take it as an evidence. They say these types of narrations, the ahad, we can't take them as an evidence. They say only the mutawatir ones, the multiple narrations, those ones we can take them as evidences. As for these singular narrations, one or two or three companions only, uh, one or two in each chain of the narration, then no. But that is something which is false. Because even if one companion narrates the hadith, even if it was one companion only, then as long as the hadith, the chain of narration is checked and it is authentic, even if there is only one person or two people in each level of the chain, as long as it is an authentic chain of narration, and therefore that hadith is proven to be authentic, then it is irrelevant, even if it was just one companion who heard it. Even if it was just one or two companions, that doesn't matter then. The hadith is authentic then. The companions, we know they are all truthful. None of them fall into error. They are all in terms of the, the hadith. They are all udul. They are all trustworthy, truthful when it comes to the narrations of the hadith. And that's why you hear the narrations of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu and others who used to say that when we heard the narrations from other companions, another companion might come to us and say that there is a narration from the Prophet ﷺ about such and such. They said we used to go to the Prophet ﷺ and ask him directly. But not because we used to doubt what the other companions were saying. We never doubted that whatsoever. When other companions used to come and tell us these narrations that they'd heard, we used to believe them 100%. We never doubted that. But they used to go to the Prophet ﷺ in any case, because it was beloved to them to hear the hadith directly from the Prophet ﷺ. It was beloved to them to hear the hadith directly from the Prophet ﷺ, the Messenger of Allah. Even though they had 100% certainty that the hadith was authentic if one of the companions came and narrated it to them. So they never had any issue about the trustworthiness of the companions. So here, the point the Shaykh is making is that we take the authentic sunnah and we use that as an evidence, even if they are ahad narrations. And there are evidences in the sunnah which prove that even if it is narrated by one person, the news can still be accepted. The hadith can still be accepted if it is authentic. You have evidences for that. One of the evidences the scholars they use is when the ayah came down for the direction of the Kaaba to change. So previously the Muslims, they used to pray towards Jerusalem. And then after that, the revelation came down that they must now face towards Mecca, the Kaaba. So when that revelation came down, it's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ sent a messenger, sent a person to go and, go and tell the other people who were praying in Masjid Quba. Some of the people say it was Masjid Al-Qiblatayn, but many of the scholars mention it was Masjid Quba. That in Masjid Quba, they were praying, Zuhar <coughs> Asr. 
They were praying towards the old direction, towards Beit al-Maqdis in Jerusalem. Then the revelation came down that it's changed towards the Kaaba now in Mecca. So the Prophet sent someone to go to Masjid Quba. So when that person went, he found that they'd already started praying towards the old direction. So he shouted out to them, the direction has changed. So in the middle of their prayer, when they heard this person tell them that the revelation has come, and the Prophet ﷺ has commanded you change your direction, in the middle of their prayer, they changed their faces and their direction towards the new direction. So when they did that, and they accepted that information, and they changed the direction of their prayer, in their prayer towards the new way, they did all of that based upon the information of how many people? One person had gone and told them that. That is a refutation of these people who say, no, you have to have multiple people, five or ten or twenty or thirty, then we can be sure it's true. One person went and told them that and they accepted it. You have another example, the Adhan. When you hear the Adhan, when you hear the Adhan, that indicates to you what? It indicates that, indicates what? It's the call to the prayer, which means that the time for the prayer has now begun. The time for the prayer has now started. You hear the adhan and you recognize that it's the time for the prayer now. That's the time for the prayer. So you get up, you make wudu and you go to the masjid. When you hear that adhan, and as a consequence of hearing it, you get up, you make wudu, you get ready, you walk to the masjid. You do all of that, you go to the masjid, based upon having heard the adhan. Based upon that information of the mu'avvin, that the time has now come in, the prayer is about to be uh, prayed. All of that information is coming from how many people? One person. How many mu'avvins are there? One mu'avvin. It's not like you've heard the adhan from ten different mu'avvins. One goes up and comes down. Another one goes up and comes down. Another one goes up and comes down. And ten of them make adhan. Then you say, okay, now I'll believe it. Now it must be the prayer time. One, one mu'avvin. One mu'avvin makes the adhan. When you hear it from that one person, you believe him. The time has come. That's the prayer. Get up, get ready, prepare yourself and go to the masjid. Based upon the information of one individual, one mu'adhin who makes the adhan. So that's some of the evidences the scholars have mentioned. And there are many others. Yeah, even if you look at the books of a hadith, Sahih al-Bukhari. Sahih al-Bukhari, the very first hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari is, إِنَّمَا الْعَمَلُ بِالنِّيَاتِ This hadith is a mutawatir or ahad. It's ahad. It's a hadith which is not narrated by multiple people at the levels of the chains of narration. Narrated by a singular companion. And even if you look down the chain of narration, there are singular individuals. One, two, one, two. Not ten or twenty at each level. And even the last hadith in Sahih Bukhari is the same. And there's many like that. Many. So the second point here the Shaykh is making is that we accept the authentic sunnah. And we don't make this differentiation that it has to be mutawatir. And that we cannot accept the ahad. The hadith, if it is authentic and it is proven, then that is an evidence that we can use in our aqidah, in our religion. The third point, At-taslim bima jaa bihi al-wahi, wa'adam raddihi bil-aqal, wa'adam al-khawdi fi al-umur al-ghaybiyya, allati la majala lil-aqal fiha. The third point is, that we submit to the texts when they come to us. The Qur'an and the Sunnah, when we find something in there, we find some evidence, it tells us what the correct aqidah is, then we submit to that. 
it's not for us to begin to say, the Qur'an says such and such, but I'm not sure. My logic, my intellect doesn't sit comfortably with that. That's irrelevant. Your logic, your intellect is irrelevant when it comes to the authentic evidences of the sunnah and the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an. So the third point here is that we submit to the texts of the Qur'an and the sunnah. And we don't try to interpret them ourselves with our own intellects or give our intellects priority on top of those texts. Because that is the people of innovation, how they did it. The people of innovation, they would give their minds more uh, priority. They would give their minds priority and precedence over the texts. So they would say, تَقْدِيمُ الْعَقَلْ al That we give our minds precedence over the texts. Meaning if something comes in the Qur'an, and our minds can't understand it, then we won't accept it. We'll give our own interpretations, we'll try to make it mean this, make it mean that, but we won't accept it as it is in that case, if it doesn't sit comfortably in our minds and our intellects. So as a consequence, they rejected many parts of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, or they misinterpreted into other false interpretations, based upon them using their intellects, uh, upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And that is common when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah. And we mentioned that briefly before. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an that He has certain names and attributes, hands, eyes, these different types of things, the face of Allah, all of these are mentioned in the Qur'an. If they are mentioned in the Qur'an, then us as Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, we accept that. We accept that Allah has hands, and Allah has a face, and Allah has eyes. We accept that. Because it tells us that in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Allah tells us in the Qur'an about those things. It's mentioned in the Sunnah about those things. So we accept that. But we do not say that Allah therefore resembles creation or is similar to creation in any way. Neither do we try to describe what those attributes and descriptions could look like. We don't try to say we know what Allah's face looks like or what the hands of Allah or the eyes of Allah look like. We cannot do that. And it's haram to try to do that. It's a bid'ah. And it's impermissible. And it's beyond our ability to be able to do that. Allah mentioned in the Qur'an, وَمَا أُوتِيتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا You've not been given knowledge. You've only been given a small amount of knowledge. You have not been given from knowledge except a small amount. So we've not been taught exactly the descriptions of Allah and what Allah looks like in those affairs. We don't know that. But we do know about certain general descriptions that Allah has mentioned. Hands and eyes and face, etc. Allah is the hearing, the seeing. All of these things are mentioned. So we accept those as they are. And we don't try to say that our intellects can't understand that. How could Allah have hands? How could Allah have eyes? How could Allah have a face? Surely it must mean something else. It must just mean that Allah's knowledge is everywhere or that Allah is just and Allah is other interpretations as they give. That is false. It is false to try to give our intellects more priority over the texts. Rather, our intellects are secondary and the texts are primary. If in the Qur'an and the Sunnah we are told Allah has these descriptions, then we accept and we submit to the fact that Allah has these descriptions. But we do not say that Allah is compared to creation. And we do not say these descriptions of Allah are like our descriptions. And we mentioned that before. That maybe the word could be the same, but the meaning can be completely different. 
So when I say, for example, the word leg, there's a thousand different descriptions you could give for the word leg. Someone could say the leg is a big tree trunk, and that's true. It could be the leg of an elephant. Someone says the leg is like a pencil, that's true. It could be the leg of a chicken. Leg, it can have lots of different descriptions, but the word is the same, leg. So now when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has hands or eyes and face, the words are the same, but the descriptions we don't know. And we can't say those are the same as creation. And we can't compare Allah to creation whatsoever. لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is nothing like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but still, even though there is nothing like Allah, He has descriptions. But we don't know what those descriptions are like. But we affirm them nevertheless. So that is the third point here regarding the aqeedah of the sunnah wal jama'ah, that we accept the revelation as it has come. And we don't attempt to give our intellects precedence or priority over that. And neither do we, another point the Shaykh makes, neither do we begin to debate and argue about the unseen things. There are many things, many parts of our iman, our belief, which are from the unseen. From the unseen. Things that happen in the grave, things that happen on the day of judgment, uh, things that will occur in the future, the signs of the hour. There are many affairs which are unseen to us. These unseen affairs, then it is not from the belief of Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah that you sit there debating and arguing and discussing and uh, engaging in conversation regarding those affairs because we've only been taught a certain amount regarding those unseen affairs. So the certain amount of knowledge that we have been given about the unseen affairs, we accept that. But over and above that, then we don't engage in debating and discussing and arguing, is it like this, is it like that? We don't do that. So now about the grave, we've been told about the things that happen in the grave of a person. The angels come to that person and they sit him up and they ask him the questions, etc. And the disbeliever or the disobedient one, his grave is squashed and made tight and his ribs are crushed, and the one who is obedient, his grave is opened and big. All of these things we know. And the disobedient one, he's beaten by the angels. All of these things we know happen in the grave. That we've been told. So we believe in that. And that's it. We don't go beyond that and attempt to discuss and debate and this and that, as the people they do now. They bring about all these types of stories. We dug up the grave, and after that we found he was getting beaten up, and we saw marks on his face and all these types of things people say. Many of these stories, they are beyond reality. Many of these stories are the people they narrate, we did this and we did that, and we dug him up and this happened and that happened. All of these things, many of them are, if not all of them, they are untrue and they are beyond reality. Because they are from the affairs of the unseen. If you dig up the grave, you're not going to see that person being beaten up. It's from the unseen. These affairs that occur are from the unseen. So these unseen affairs, we don't go into debates and argumentation and discussion uh, and engage in uh, discussing beyond what we've been taught in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Because quite clearly, the very fact that these are unseen affairs dictates that we have no knowledge of them. They are unseen. We have no knowledge of them other than what we've been taught. So how can you possibly sit there and discuss and debate something which is outside of your knowledge in the first place? And that's why it is not from the methodology of the Salaf to go into debate and discussion and argumentation about the unseen affairs because our minds and our intellects have no uh, capability to do that. Another one of the principles the Shaykh mentions regarding the Aqeedah is Adam al-Khawdi fi ilm al-Kalami wal-Falsafah. 
that we do not engage in discussions and debates and argumentation regarding philosophy and those types of philosophical arguments that people they bring. People bring philosophical arguments to try to prove to you various things about the existence of Allah or about Allah descending to the last third of the night. They bring lots of different debates and lots of different arguments. How could this be and how could that be? But if Allah has hands, then we have hands. And if Allah has eyes, we have eyes. And they try to bring about all different types of doubts and confusions and argumentations. That type of philosophical speech, which is not based upon evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. It is based upon their own interpretations. It is based upon their own logic and intellect. We don't discuss those affairs. We don't get engaged in that type of argumentation. The Qur'an and the Sunnah as it explains, we stick to that and we cling on to that and we accept that and implement that. Outside of that, this philosophy and this false speech that the people they brought, some of them saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one of his names is Al-Alim. One of the names of Allah, Al-Alim. So some of the people, these philosophers, they said, these are the types of nonsense they bring. They say Allah is Al-Alim or Allah is Al-Hakim, Allah is Al-Rahman. But he doesn't really have any knowledge. He is Al-Alim without knowledge. He is Al-Rahman, the merciful one, but without any mercy. So they say he has the name, but he doesn't have the attribute. And these types of nonsensical debates and argumentation that they have. So those types of affairs, we don't engage in them and we don't discuss them and we don't waste our time upon them. That is something that the Salaf they mentioned. Clearly the scholars, they wrote books to refute those affairs. There are books that are written to refute these false methodologies. But that does not mean that we now sit and debate and discuss and argue and engage in philosophy and the speech of those philosophers. The fifth principle, رفض التأويل الباطل Rejecting false interpretations. These false interpretations that the philosophers and other people they bring to you, these false understandings of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, so they say to you for example, that the hadith about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descending in the last third of the night, uh, and then Allah says, مَنْ يَسْتَغْفِرُنِي فَأَغْفِرَ لَهُ Who is seeking my forgiveness, I will forgive him. مَنْ يَسْأَلُنِي فَأَعْطِيهِ Who's asking me for anything, I'll give it to him. Who's seeking repentance, I'll give him repentance. This hadith they say, these philosophers and these people who give their intellect priority, they say, Allah, no, it's not Allah who descends himself. What do you mean Allah descends to the lowest heaven? It's not Allah who descends. They say it is one of the angels of Allah that descends. Or it is the command of Allah that descends. These are the types of arguments they bring. But these types of false interpretations and we reject them. Because they are clearly refuted. If it was one of the angels that was descending, then how could the hadith possibly say that the angel when it descends, the angel says, who is seeking my forgiveness, I can forgive him. It is not for the angels to forgive the people. And it is not for us to ask the angels for forgiveness. The hadith says, who is asking for my forgiveness and I will forgive him. Who is asking me for any other supplication, I will give it to him. Who is the one that we can seek forgiveness from or seek our supplications from? That is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not the angels, not the command of Allah as they say, but that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these types of arguments that they bring, they are false interpretations of their own intellects. Rather we accept the real meaning of the texts as they are, and we reject all of this false interpretation. 
The sixth principle is الْجَمْعُ بَيْنَ النُّسُوسِ فِي الْمَسْأَلَةِ الْوَاحِدَةِ To collect all of the evidences in one particular affair. The meaning of that is that when you want to come to a decision or an understanding, or you want to come to a conclusion on the ruling of a particular thing, you want to know what the correct aqidah is in this particular issue, then what you need to do is collect all of the evidences from the Qur'an and the Sunnah about that issue. You can't just take one hadith somewhere about that issue and make your decision based upon that one hadith. There could be ten other hadith which explain lots of different other things about that issue. Only when you put all of the evidences together will you be able to get the context of that issue and then be able to understand properly what it all means together. But if you only take one narration by itself somewhere or one ayah by itself somewhere and leave all of the other ayat, all of the other ahadith that are talking about the same issue, then you're obviously going to end up coming to a incorrect conclusion. You will end up coming to a false understanding of that issue. And that's why the scholars, they mentioned that the people of innovation, it's from their methodology that they will pick a few bits from here and from there. They will pick a few ayats from here, they'll pick a few hadith from here, put them together and make their aqidah and make their religion. But Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, we don't pick and mix a few from here or from there. Rather, you bring all the evidences together in coming to the understanding. Look at the Khawarij. They picked out the evidences upon the punishment of those who do the sins. They picked out the evidences of the punishment and the threat from Allah upon those who sin. They picked out all of those evidences and began to say that the one who, makes a, who commits a major sin is a kafir in the hellfire forever. Because they picked out all of those evidences that speak about those types of things only. So they ended up at their own conclusion. The murji'ah, they picked out all of the evidences in the sunnah which says, Man qala la ilaha illallah dakhal al-jannah. Whoever says la ilaha illallah, he will enter paradise. Correct? Authentic these types of narrations. But they only picked out those narrations. So they said, as long as you say la ilaha illallah, as long as you have that belief, then no sin will harm you. You will enter paradise. You will go directly to paradise, etc. There's no sin that will harm you. Your iman will not go down. Again, because they only selected those narrations. So when the people of innovation, they selected certain narrations from here and from there, then they ended up at incorrect conclusions. But by putting together the narrations and understanding the whole picture, then you get the proper understanding. It's like, for example, the people of innovation, they'll say to you, that it is impossible to see Allah. We know that in this world, it is impossible to see Allah. That's correct. In this world, before the day of resurrection, it is impossible to see Allah. Hadith. لَن تَرَوْ رَبَّكُمْ حَتَّى تَمُوتُوا You will not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until you die. Until the resurrection occurs. In this world, we know you can't. In the hereafter, the aqidah of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, you will see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That on that day, the faces of the people will be radiant and bright, looking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, looking towards Allah. That's mentioned, that the greatest reward for the believers on the day of judgment in uh, paradise is that they will be able to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The people of innovation, they came along and said, you can never see Allah in this world or the hereafter. Why? Because they picked out the odd narrations from here and from there without looking at the whole picture. So they picked out the ayah regarding Musa alayhi salam. لَن تَرَانِي You will never see me. 
ayah in the Quran. You will never see me. Lan tarani. When Musa السلام, about the mountain, then Allah said, look towards the mountain, if it stays in its place, etc. In there it says, Lan tarani. You will not see me. You will never see me. So they said, there you go. Ayah in the Quran, it says you will never see me. Okay, if you take it by itself, it says, Lan tarani. You might understand from that, okay, the ayah is saying you can never see Allah. But when you put it together with the other narrations, so you put it together with the hadith that we just mentioned. لَن تَرَوْ رَبَّكُمْ You will never see Allah. حَتَّى تَمُوتُوا Until you die. Meaning when you die and you are resurrected, then you can see Allah. And the other ayah, وَجُوهٌ يَوْمَئِذٍ نَاظِرَ إِلَىٰ رَبِّهَا نَاظِرَةً That on that day their faces will be radiant, looking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, looking towards Allah. So when you look at that ayah, and you look at this hadith, and you look at this ayah, put it all together, and you come to the conclusion, that yes, these narrations are saying you can't see Allah. But there are those that are saying you can see Allah in the hereafter. Therefore the correct aqidah must be, that in this world, before the resurrection occurs, before the day of judgment, we can't see Allah. That's what the evidences indicate. But in the hereafter, we will be able to see Allah. That's how the correct understanding comes together. When you put all of the narrations together. But if I only pick out one from here or one from there, then you end up at wrong conclusions. And that's why the people of innovation, as Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned in Kashf al-Shubuhat, that the people of innovation, they take out those ayats from the Qur'an which are mutashabih. Mutashabihat meaning that they are ayat which in of themselves, by themselves, might possibly, from your perspective, when you look at them, hold dual meanings or multiple meanings. It's possible to interpret different things from them. When you look at them independently by themselves, you as an individual, the Qur'an itself is clear. But from your perspective, it may be mutashabih. It may be that, could it mean this? It could mean that. The people of innovation take those kinds of ayat. And they say, well, it could mean this and it could mean that, but it means that, it means that. So you don't know. Because when you look at the ayah, you think, well, it's possible, it could mean that. But then the scholars have said, what you do in that case is look at the other ayat in the Qur'an which are similar to that or they explain that. So when you look at it in context with the other verses of the Qur'an, you will understand what it means. The example for uh, when they say that Allah is closer to you than your jugular vein. So people say this is an evidence that Allah is everywhere. Again, that's an example. If you were to look carefully at those ayat in the Qur'an, you will find that the meaning of it is, as many of the scholars said, it is the angels that are being spoken about in those ayat. The angels are closer to you than in jugular vein, i.e. they are writing down everything. So this is the point about looking at everything in context. Not picking out one narration here, one narration there. And that's exactly what the people of innovation and deviance do. Whenever they want to prove something to you that this is allowed, that's allowed, they'll give you some one or two odd narrations in this book or in that book, Imam this said that and Imam this said that. One or two narrations here or there. When you ask them, yeah, but Akhi, if you look at the whole situation, you're saying it's allowed to go to the graves, because of this one narration you found somewhere, or one narration you found over there. What about all of these other narrations that say it's haram to call upon others, and it's haram to make supplications to others, and it's haram to use intercession? What about all of those? Then that's where their arguments break up. Because when you put them into context, and you give them the evidences from the Qur'an and the Sunnah within that issue, then it becomes clear that the one or two evidences that they've used were out of context, and they were using them out of context. So the sixth point here is that Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, they collate 
they gather all of the texts of the Quran and the Sunnah in a particular issue to look at it in context, holistically, before coming to a conclusion on the correct aqidah in that affair. So then the Shaykh says, فَهَذِهِ الْعَقِيدَةِ مُسْتَقَاهِ مِنَ النَّبْعِ الصَّافِي So this aqidah, it is taken from the pure source. كِتَابُ اللَّهِ وَسُنَّةِ رَسُولِهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم بَعِيدَ عَنِ الْأَهْوَاءِ وَالشُّبَهِ It is taken from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and it is far removed from any type of desires or doubts. فَالْمُتَمَسِّكُ بِهَا يَكُونُ مُعَظِّمًا لِنَصُوصِ الْكِتَابِ وَسُنَّةِ لِأَنَّهُ يَعْلَمُ أَنَّ كُلَّ مَا فِيهَا حَقٌ وَصَوَابٌ So the person who sticks to that, he is glorifying the texts of the Qur'an and the Sunnah because he knows that everything within them is truth. الإمام البربهاري رحمه الله تعالى he said, وَعَلَمْ رَحِمَكَ اللَّهُ أَنَّ الدِّينَ إِنَّمَا جَاءَ مِنْ قِبَلِ اللَّهِ تَبَارَكَ وَتَعَالَى لَمْ يُضَعْ عَلَى عُقُولِ الرِّجَالِ وَآرَائِهِمْ That the religion, he says, have knowledge of this affair, know about this. That the religion, it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is revelation from Allah. Not, it is not something which has been placed upon the intellects of men and their opinions. It's not about intellects and opinions and logic. This religion is revelation from Allah. وَعِلْمُهُ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ وَعِنْدَ رَسُولِهِ And the knowledge of that is with Allah and His Messenger. فَلَا تَتْبَعْ شَيْئًا بِهَوَاكَ فَتَمْرُقُ مِنَ الدِّينِ So don't follow anything based upon your desires, your intellect. Well, how can Allah possibly have these names and descriptions? Surely it must mean something else. So that's your intellect now talking to you. Follow your intellect and you may exit from this religion or you may fall into great error. فَتَخْرُجُ مِنَ الْإِسْلَامِ It's possible you may even fall into an error which exits you from Islam. فَإِنَّهُ لَا حُجَّةَ لَكَ So you will have no evidence. Because the Prophet ﷺ has clarified to his people the sunnah and made it clear. And he made it clear to the companions. And that is the truth and that is the truth that we are commanded to follow. Similarly, he said in Sharh Sunnah, وَالْأَسَاسُ الَّذِي تُبْنَ عَلَيْهِ الْجَمَاعَةِ وَهُمْ أَصْحَابُ مُحَمَّدٍ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمُ هُمْ أَهْلُ سُنَّةِ وَالْجَمَاعَةِ فَمَنْ لَمْ يَأْخُذْ عَنْهُمْ فَقَدْ ضَلَّ وَابْتَدَعَ وَكُلُّ وَكُلُّ بِدْعَةٍ ضَلَالَةٍ That the basis and the foundation which the the companions are built upon, they built their religion upon, their understanding upon, is that you do not. وَهُمْ أَهْلُ السُّنَّةِ وَالْجَمَاعَةِ فَمَنْ لَمْ يَخْذَ عَنْهُمْ فَقَدْ دَلَّ أَوْبْتَدَعَ Is the companions and what they had their understanding based upon in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So whoever doesn't take from them and that pure source, then that individual will fall into innovation and every innovation is a misguidance. Then the shaykh says, قُلْتُ فَمِنْ مُمَيِّزَاتِ الْمَنْهَجَ سَلَفِي he says, from the distinguishing factors of the Salafi methodology, therefore. Firstly, ثَبَاتُ أَهْلِهِ عَلَى الْحَقِّ وَعَدَمْ تَقَلُّبِهِمْ كَمَا هِيَ عَادَةُ أَهْلِ الْهَوَى أو أَهْلِ الْأَهْوَى He says, firstly, that the people of the Sunnah, they are firm upon the truth. They are firm and established upon the truth, and they don't turn and switch and move around and change their opinions left, right and center, one day the aqidah is this, one day the aqidah is that. Rather they are firm and they are established upon it. And they don't change and swap and move around as is the 
habit of the people of desires. Because they are following their desires, because they are following their opinions, one day their opinion might be one thing, the next day their opinion might be something else. One day they tell you this is okay, next day, well, maybe it's not okay. That's their desires and their opinions. But the people of the sunnah, they are firmly established upon the truth. Hudayfa uh, said, Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman radiallahu anhu, he said, إِنَّ الضَّلَالَةِ He said, indeed, misguidance. أَن تَعْرِفَ مَا كُنْتَ تُنْكِرُ That you think something to be good, which you used to know was bad. You used to know this is haram, this is bid'ah, this is incorrect. But then all of a sudden, the whispers come to you, the desires come to you, and now all of a sudden, it's not too bad and it's okay. So when you find yourself in that state, that you start to think things are okay and good, when you used to know full well, that those things are haram or bid'ah or wrong, then that is a sign of misguidance. And similarly, تُنْكِرُ مَا كُنْتَ تعرف, That you begin to say things are wrong and haram, even though you used to know full well with evidences they are correct and okay. But the shaitan comes, the desires they come, so you begin to say, no, they're wrong for doing this and they're wrong for doing that. Even though you used to know that this is correct and good. And be warned from this swapping and changing and this chameleon-like behavior where you are altering your colors all the time because indeed the religion of Allah is one. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah says, وَبِالْجُمْلَةِ فَالثَّبَاتُ وَالْإِسْتِقْرَارُ فِي أَهْلِ الْحَدِيثِ وَالسُنَّةِ أَضْعَافْ مَا هُوَ عِنْدَ أَهْلِ الْكَلَامِ وَالْفَلْسَفَةِ Establishment and being firmly grounded, this establishment and being firmly grounded amongst Ahlul Hadith, i.e. Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, is greater than the establishment and the firmly grounded nature of the people of innovation and the people of philosophy by multiple times. Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah are far more grounded and established in those affairs than the people of innovation and philosophy could ever be. Shaykh Islam also says, إِنَّمَا عِنْدَ عَوَامِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ وَعُلَمَائِهِمْ أَهْلَ سُنَّةِ وَالْجَمَاعَةِ That the common Muslims and the scholars from them, from the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the common Muslims or the scholars from Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, they've got understanding and certainty and tranquility in their hearts, certainty of the truth that they are upon, and they are firmly established upon that. And nobody disputes that or argues with that except someone whose intellect is missing. Somebody whose intellect is gone, his intellect has been taken, then he's the person who's going to argue with those types of things. Otherwise, that Quran and Sunnah and the truth is firmly established. Also from the distinguishing factors of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah is that their Aqeedah is the same and the one Aqeedah throughout time. From the time of the Salaf to those who came after Al-Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Al-Qayyam, Al-Imam Al-Zahabi, to the later scholars, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, Sheikh Ibn Baz, in our time, Sheikh Fawzan, the same thing. Many other scholars besides them, all of them upon the same aqidah, starting from the time of the Prophet ﷺ up until now. Not a single change. That indicates the establishment and the correctness of this aqidah, that it doesn't change no matter what the time or the place is. Similarly, from the distinguishing characteristics is that Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, they are the most knowledgeable 
of the people regarding the affairs of the Prophet ﷺ, the state of the Prophet ﷺ, his statements, his actions. They are the most knowledgeable of the people regarding that because they give so much importance to learning that sunnah and to understanding what the Prophet ﷺ used to do, how he used to do it, what he used to say, more than the other people. All these other people, half of them you say, every time you ask them for something, all they say to you is, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa said. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa said. What about the Prophet ﷺ said? Al-Imam Abu Hanifa. No doubt, he has his virtue and he has what he has mentioned. And there were errors certain that the scholars have mentioned too. But it's not for a person now to suddenly start thinking that his religion is based upon Al-Imam Abu Hanifa. Now we have the Prophet ﷺ. And this is one of the distinguishing factors of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah that they return back to that source. Also, we believe, Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, that the methodology of the Salaf it is the sound methodology and the knowledgeable methodology. That is the sound and proper and correct methodology and the knowledgeable methodology. As opposed to the people of innovation who used to say that the methodology of the Salaf, that is sound, it's good, it's proper. The methodology of the Salaf is good and proper. Because they stick to the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it is. They stick to the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it is. So that's a good way of doing things. You can't get blamed for that. Stick to the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it is. So they used to say the people of innovation, the people of innovation used to say, the methodology of the Salaf is good for that reason. It's sound. But they used to say, our methodology, i.e. the people of innovation, their methodology, they used to say, is more intellectual. They used to say, we're cleverer in our methodology. The Salaf, they being sound and safe. They're sticking to the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it is. But we, i.e. the people of innovation, talking about themselves, they used to say, we look into the texts and we pick out meanings that they are not doing. We've managed to be clever and get more meanings out of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And we understand more things that they haven't understood. But because they're being safe, they're playing it safe and just sticking to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, then that's good. They've got a safe methodology. But our methodology is cleverer. That's what they used to say. But rather we say the methodology of the Salaf is safe and cleverer and more knowledgeable. Because sticking to the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it is, that's where the knowledgeable affair is. That's what's knowledgeable, that's what's clever. Not trying to use your intellect and going astray. That's not clever whatsoever. So that's what we believe, that the knowledge of the, the methodology of the Salaf, that is the correct methodology, the sound methodology, and the knowledgeable methodology. Also from the fifth affair is the enthusiasm that Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah have to spread the correct Aqeedah. Compare that to the people of innovation who have their enthusiasm in spreading anything but the correct Aqeedah. Jama'at tabligh now. They don't even talk about Aqeedah. When you tell them or ask them about it, they become, they become agitated. If you start asking them questions about Allah, where is Allah, what are the names and attributes, they become agitated. They don't want to discuss those affairs with you. You go to the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, they say, don't speak about these things. These affairs, they split the people up. You've got this Ash'ari, you've got this Maturidi, Mu'tazari, Jahmi. We don't want to split the people with these Aqeedah issues. Just talk about something to do with the fiqh, about how to pray. Just tell everyone to come and pray in the masjid. Tell everyone about other things, things that we can agree upon. But these are the affairs of Aqeedah, they're going to split the people. So don't talk about them. Rather, Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, we don't fall into any of that nonsense. 
There is enthusiasm to teach the people the correct aqidah, to teach them what tawheed is. Because that tawheed and aqidah, that is the foundation for someone being saved and entering into paradise on the day of judgment. So that is one of the distinguishing characteristics of Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah compared to the other groups who, if you go to them, all they talk about is what's happening to the Muslims in this country, in that country. We know about those affairs. We know what's happening. And we do what we are able to do in terms of aiding our brothers and sisters. But that doesn't mean that that's all we ever talk about. Politics here, politics there. This happening, that happening. We have to do the demonstration this week, demonstration next week. And that's all they talk about. The correct aqidah, there's no importance to it. But Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah are distinguished because they give that importance. And the sixth characteristic which we'll conclude upon is the middle and center, centered nature of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. When it comes to Aqidah, Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah are in the middle. Whereas the other groups, they deviated away. So some of them, they went to extremism, some of them fell short. But Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, they are in the middle of those affairs. So the Khawarij, they went to an extremism by claiming that the Muslims are going to be in the hellfire forever. They went out against the Muslim rulers and they took their blood and their wealth, etc. and the Muslims at large. The Murji'ah went to the other side, they began to say, your sins will not harm you in any way. So they went to extremes. The Qadariyah, they began to go to an extreme and say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not aware of the decree until we do it. The Jabariyyah went to the other side, they began to say, we are compelled to do everything we do. So you see these differences amongst them. Iman also. Some of them claiming it increases and decreases, others they say, no, it doesn't. The correct understanding is that it increases and decreases. But some of them they went astray. And they began to say, it does not increase and decrease, and it is one entity, etc. So the people of innovation, they went to the extremes in the issues of Aqidah. Whereas Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, they took that middle path. They didn't go to extremes. They didn't go to the extreme of saying the companions are kuffar. And neither did they go to the extreme of raising certain companions to the level of Allah himself. As some of the Shia did with Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu. They began to say that he is God himself. So Ali ibn Abi Talib and all of the companions agreed to kill them. And so they killed them. At that time when some of them they said to Ali ibn Abi Talib, you have uluhiyah in you. You have some godness in you. So all of the companions agreed, these people who claim that about Ali... Anhu, they should be killed and they were killed by agreement of the companions. So we don't go to extremism and neither do we fall into shortcoming. Rather, Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah are always in the middle path when it comes to the names and attributes, when it comes to the decree, it comes to Iman, comes to the companions, all of the different affairs regarding Aqidah. So we'll conclude upon that point. There are some of the factors that a person must bear in mind when looking at the Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah. After that, we'll briefly have a look at the next chapter, which is the methodology of the people of innovation. The opposite, the methodology of the people of innovation. We'll have a look at their style and how they went astray. And then after that, once explaining what they went into, we'll have a look at the manner in which you are able to protect yourself from falling into their methodology. They have their methodology, their misguided methodology. So after mentioning what that is and how they do it, we will then go on to mention how a person can protect himself from ever falling into that false methodology. So inshallah, we'll continue from there next week. And we'll conclude upon that point today. Subhanakallahumma bihamdulillah.